Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And I'm delighted that today I'm joined by a very special guest, Chris Hector. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Very well. Jolly good, jolly good. Now, I first met Chris when you were doing ESR, Expert Speaker Revolution, with Progressive Sister Company Unlimited Success, and you were doing speaker training. Are you using your speaker training, by the way? Uh, definitely, definitely. It's been most valuable. Fantastic. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But one of the things which struck me about Chris amongst many things which are very interesting about Chris, is firstly his background, where he's come from, and secondly, what you're doing at the moment. We're going to touch on that. Very, very pertinent information that Chris has got for everybody today. If you're involved in property at all, you really need to listen to this podcast because of what Chris is going to tell us. But Chris, before we get into the nitty gritty, let's, ha let's have a quick chat about who you are. So you're Chris Hector from Hector's Electrics Limited, but you haven't always been an electrician, have you? And in fact, Taking you back slightly further, is it true that you've actually been a competitive sportsman? Uh, yes, in my, in my time I've spent a, a number of years, 23 years I think, competing in target shooting. Fantastic. And where did you end up? What was the ultimate, what was the pinnacle of your achievement in that? Well, I managed to have the honour of representing England a number of times at the Commonwealth Games and won 12 medals for them. Fantastic. 12 medals. Mm. Brilliant. In target shooting, what, yeah. for those who are sort of gun buffs, what, what, was, what was it, were you actually doing? Oh, I was in three events, so uh, one's called air rifle, which shot over a distance of 10 metres with a target with rings from 1 to 10. Yeah. The 10 is half a millimetre, um, so it's quite small. Uh, then uh, another event called, uh, it's referred to as 3 by 40 which is shooting in three, 40 shots in three different stances over 50 metres uh, at a target that's 10, mil 10 millimetres for the 10, and then prone, which is lying down uh, over 50 metres again, the same sort of target. Right, and 12 medals. Yeah. That must be something of a record. There's not many people who've got 12 medals in the Commonwealth Games, uh, I think imagine. Karen Pickering, the swimmer, um, I think she's uh, one up on me, and then my good friend Mick Gold, who's shot, shot pistols, he's got 15, I think. Right, right, so you're one of the top three of all yeah. time. Fantastic. Well, you know, I'm very honoured that you've come to be on my podcast today, Chris. It's, oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Yeah. And it's just amazing who you meet within the progressive community. All sorts of people rubbing shoulders with and never quite sure who they are or what they're doing. We've had all sorts of world record holders and celebrities and all sorts coming through Masterclass, for example, where I train. And you're never quite sure. You don't know until you start speaking to them exactly who they are and what their background is. All coming to learn about property. So Chris, we're going to be talking about property and you've got some very direct advice for us which we all need to know. But before we get on to, to that, let's explore who you are and what you are a little bit more. Have you always been in property? Have you always been an electrician? Well, no. Um, I suppose my working career started in a family business. We, uh, we had a, a firm that sold office furniture direct, by, by direct mail to companies across uh, originally the home counties but then nationally. And that grew to a size. We got to about, I suppose, around 11 million pounds worth of turnover, and created our own manufacturing company. 
Uh, unfortunately, then the recession came along and we found ourselves a bit overloaded with fixed overheads we couldn't get away from. And ultimately, that uh, organisation had to fold, uh, which was a tough time for me and, and tough time for my family. But um, I was left sort of sitting what wondering what I should now do, having spent a long time in the same industry. And I went to another company in that office furniture industry based in Oxfordshire and uh, was a sales director for them and ran a small team. But I found the uh, change quite dramatic from a family business where you can be quite nimble in your decision making, trying to find the right solution to perhaps quite a political boardroom where it's more important to be the most important person in the boardroom rather than making the company the best company it could be. And I found that quite a difficult adjustment to make. And uh, come August 2014, I came home to my wife and said, look, I really can't do this anymore. I've, I've got to stop. It's just wearing me very thin. And it's definitely not the person I am. Mm -hmm. But my wife said to me, no, you should carry on doing it. The money's good. The package you're on's good. We've got good holidays. Keep going. So, OK, all right, I will do. But I'm just not liking it at all. Uh, Come October 2014, the MD invited me into his office and with a very grim face said, Chris, well, we're going to have to let you go. At which point I beamed at him, which kind of unnerved him a bit. He wasn't expecting me to smile quite so broadly. Um, but because they had originally wanted to make sure I didn't go anywhere else, they put me on a six-month notice period. So with this in my mind, I'm thinking, right, OK, what's going to happen? And he said, well, we'd really like you to leave today. And that made my smile even broader. So I, I was... Uh, out of a job, I suppose, but with six months' pay to do something with. And I'd already done some property training and knew that property was going to be important to me. Um, so I wanted to do a new business that would keep me connected to property. So I thought one of the main um, things you need when you're developing properties is a good electrician. So I went on and did a fast-track electrician's course and set up my business, Hector's Electrics. And uh, now I employ a couple of people and looking to grow a bit further. And that's kind of how we get to today. Right. Well, if the listeners could actually see me, you'd have seen me nodding away when I was listening to you saying that, because I can relate to that so much, because I was made redundant many, many years ago. And although I didn't beam, I, f I was smiling inside, because like you, I felt it was probably what I wanted at the time. Although common sense would suggest, a bit like your wife was saying, probably if you can stick in there, do stick in there. But sometimes when the decision's made for you, it's a fantastic feeling, isn't it? I know that being made redundant... It's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me, strangely. Do you see it that way yourself, or have things worked out the way that you'd wanted them to work out? Uh, yeah, having your destiny in your own hands is, is brilliant, and uh, you know, having that with my business is great, and also property allows you to have your destiny in your own hands quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, I imagine that your values are probably very similar to mine, and for anybody who's listening who's not quite sure what I'm talking about, if you read anything by uh, Dr. D. Martini, who's a good friend of Progressive, take you through working out your values. That's what really makes you tick and helps you decide on why you make the decisions that you make. And when I went through the process of exploring my values, I found that my single highest value is freedom, whatever that means. And I guess that means different things to different people. But for me, it's choice, being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's one of the things which being in property really gives me. And just listening to you, Chris, it sounds like it's probably going to be a very high value of yours as well. Perhaps going from the family firm where you had a certain amount of control into an environment where you didn't have the control. You were just thinking, ooh, I want to get out of this. 
and now you found yourself back in control and, and presumably able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Yeah, very much more so. I mean, I suppose my highest value is probably family, my family, okay. my, my children and my wife. Uh, they're really important to me. Uh, and I suppose I might be slightly different in that I can't see myself ever stop working, but uh, I, I've got this goal of working just school hours, six weeks off in the summer, nine till three, I'll be very happy. Excellent, excellent. So you transitioned into being an electrician and you did it in six weeks. Yeah, well, you know, that doesn't get you fully, fully qualified. And I'm sure there's people who've put uh, uh, an awful lot more into electric electrician education who might look down the nose slightly at me but uh, that six weeks gets you qualified to do domestic electrics doesn't get you into mechanical electrics or quite as much in-depth knowledge as a full apprenticeship would do but it ideally situated me for um, serving property investors and landlords so uh, it doesn't get me into industrial um, developments where you wind up conveyors and lifts and things yeah but uh, it did what it had its purpose and put me into the niche I wanted to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to say something which might surprise a few of our listeners, but it's going to say this is a really interesting subject. And I realise that there's a danger when you say that about a technical subject, because for a lot of people, the technical side of it actually isn't that interesting at all. But one of the things which strikes me, particularly as a property investor, is that how, f how few uh, property investors probably understand electrics other than in a very basic way. I mean, I'm probably at the, the extreme because I don't understand anything about electrics. All I know is that the lights works when you turn the switch on and off. When it comes to wiring plugs and stuff in my house, my wife always does that. There we are, I've confessed it. Does it make me a bad person? Possibly, but that's how it is. So I know absolutely nothing. I know there's three wires. There's a sort of a blue, and a blue one, a brown one, and a green and yellow one. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, Something like that. It's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, but it strikes me that probably, particularly in this day and age, we should know a lot more about it. Not to the point where we go and do our own wiring, and there's reasons why we shouldn't do that, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But having a basic grasp of how it works has got to be a good thing for property investors, property people, I would have thought. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And if, that, if you get a bit of knowledge, it could save you an awful lot of money in your refurb. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's important to have a basic knowledge of what's going on. Okay, okay. So, when we're looking for a property, when I'm looking for a property, probably the most important thing to me is, can I refurb it? Can I add some value? Can I refinance my money back out? But from your point of view, you probably wouldn't be looking at it that way. What do you think is the most important thing then when, we, when we're buying a property? Well, I think one of the key services in any property is your electrical system and making sure that it's up to standard and safe is really, really important. The, the safety bit is massive, because if it's not safe, somebody could die, which is not probably what you want <laughs> in your property portfolio. Um, so I think getting that assessment done as soon as you possibly can is really important. Yeah. Now, I mean, the way that the political winds are blowing, probably rightly, and recently in the news we've had the Grenfell Tower fire, for example, we don't know yet how that was started. But certainly, even before that, the political winds were blowing where politicians are putting landlords, investors under scrutiny when it comes to standards. With HMOs, there's already uh, mandatory electrical tests, not necessarily on buy-to-lets at the moment, but you can see that that's all going to change, probably. My managing agent was saying to me, uh, a few months back that their guess is that mandatory checks for buy-to-lets will probably come in over the next year or so. 
or are even on their way this year. So you can see the way that the winds are blowing. So we do need to know this stuff for sure. But unless you're trained, Chris, it can be quite hard, can't it? I mean, if there's a, if there's a system which is close to failure, how easy is that to spot? Well, you know, that, that can be quite difficult to spot. Um, w the most common reason you need a rewire is there's a particular test that fails, which is called an insulation test. So if you go back to your wires that you've, yeah. you've got a good grasp of, there are commonly three wires in most electrical circuits. There's a live, something called a CPC, or Circuit Protective Conductor, or Earth, as most people refer it to, and uh, neutral. And they lie in a grey sheathing in that order, with the, the Earth in the middle. Um, the live and the neutral have their own insulation around them. Uh, the, the Earth doesn't inside the grey sheathing. We run a little test called an insulation test where we shove 500 volts down these cables and make sure that the resistance is high enough to, or insulation is high enough between those conductors not to cause a problem. Now the regulation says that that measure should be one mega ohms. People may remember ohms from their physics but don't worry it's one mega ohm. If I took a brand new cable my tester can't read that resistance. It just says it's greater than 999 mega ohms. Now, in older properties, I've come across those tests getting down to one or two, one and a bit more megaohms. At that point, the system's close to failure. But you can't tell that by looking, it needs to be tested. And um, that's why it's important to look at it first, because the impact of not looking at it first is that you may do a whole lot of refurbishment work and then find out, oh no, all the cables are shot. Mm. Oh right, we're gonna have to cut chases in all the walls mm. that we've just painted plaster them back in again and repaint it all. And, you know, that's quite a costly exercise. Um, I've actually been through that myself. My very first refurb, where I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was very enthusiastic about it. I ended up doing loads of work on this property myself. Then I got the electrician in to do things like sort of wiring in the cooker and stuff. And yeah, you're right, he had a look at it and he was all chasing out all my new plaster everywhere. Very, very frustrating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but if, it, if it was failing and if it came to a rewire, what would the impact of that be? I mean, I know it's, it's only a sort of a broad generalisation, but an average house, what would it cost to rewire, say, an average three-bed semi? Well, you're going to be around £3,000, roughly. Yeah. Three to four, just depending on how you spec it. Yeah. So that's a decent amount of cash, isn't it? So if you're on a budget with your refurb, you need to know before. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm just giving you the price of the electrics. Um, one of the problems can be um, that you're having to remove plaster and uh, particularly in older buildings you may find that there are hollow areas behind the plaster where the plaster's fallen off the wall. Yeah. But you don't know that, it's all supported until yeah. you do a little knock round yeah. you can hear dead patches. Yeah. Uh, when you cut a chase through there um, it presents the plaster with a problem in that when he pushes the plaster into the gap it pushes that plaster that's loose back to the wall and as soon as he takes his trowel off, it pops back, rubbish yeah. finish. Yeah. So your plaster will then follow that void that's behind the, the plaster as far as he can till he finds good bits. And uh, you know, there's a very good instance I had up in uh, no uh, Nottingham, Rossington Road, where we ended up taking all the plaster off the wall mm. after the guy paid for the paper to be removed. Mm. It was a complete waste of money, because if he'd just taken the plaster off the wall in the first place, he wouldn't have paid for the paper to come off. Yeah. So he paid twice. Yeah. Yeah, and this is it, isn't it? I mean, we don't want to sort of give everybody the impression that doing refurbs is just like a horror story waiting to happen. But this is why we do our due diligence, and this is why we look before we leap, as it were, and we actually make sure we know what we're buying. 
So you're absolutely right, one problem can just lead to another problem. And before you know it, your little bit of rewiring this maybe becomes sort of replastering the whole house and stripping the whole thing back to the brick or whatever. But that, that's why it's important to get an electrician in early, as early as you can, because um, running some simple tests can set the budget. Okay. Let's assume, though, tom tomorrow morning I go off and I do a viewing of a property. What sort of things should I be looking for as a layperson before I even think about getting the electrician in? Well, the first thing really to look at is uh, your fuse board or consumer unit, and we should really be saying consumer unit, and I'll explain the differences in a moment. But on that board, there should be an inspection label, and that should say the date it was last inspected and when the next inspection is due. Now, if it's a, uh, a residential property, the, the, the difference in those dates should be 10 years. If it's, a, if it's a rental property, the difference in those dates should be five years. If it's anything less than that, the only reason an electrician would reduce that date is because there's something that he's tested that he thinks will need checking sooner, and it's normally the insulation test, because the wires are already degrading to a point where he's significantly concerned about them. If that inspection label isn't present, that's a, another kettle of fish, really. And if you're looking at buying that property, you've got to um, either ask for a discount for um, uh, a potential rewire replacing that box. Now, let's just deal with fuse boards and consumer units, because yeah. that's quite an important point, uh, or quite an important difference. So fuse boards are boards which have rewirable fuses. They're normally dark brown, bakelite type box with cartridges that you pull out and that have a little... If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. fuse wire in and that little fuse wire is a particular thickness to ensure that an, a right amount of current can pass through it to provide that circuit. So typically sockets may be a 30 amp fuse, um, lighting may be a 5 amp fuse in those fuse boards. Um, one of the problems with fuse boards is if some people who don't know what they're doing might put the wrong fuse in the wrong circuit. So you might accidentally burn out too quickly if you put a 5 amp one in a 30 amp one. Well I, I've seen one where I think somebody puts something like a 2pp sim if you can yeah. Really, yeah and all sorts of crazy stuff goes on. Indeed well, you know the size of those wires is important to protect people mm. um, and the idea is that once it gets a certain ampage the fuse wire burns out and it's like an, an automatic disconnection of supply mm. so you know it's quite important that people don't go and put nails in there because mm. it's easier. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, fuse boards had their place, but they are definitely old school and don't offer you the full protection. And uh, I'll just highlight that by mentioning 
some research which was done which showed that um, 0.05 of an amp across your chest can give you a cardiac arrest. Now, of course, the result of a cardiac arrest is that you may die. So that's quite important. Now, fuse boards don't protect you to that level. They only protect you to typically 30 amps on a socket circuit and 5 amps on a lighting circuit. So if someone is unlucky enough to touch that circuit, they're going to get 5 to 6 amps or 30 to 31 amps through their body. And if it's in the wrong place, if it travels the wrong way through your body, mm. you're at significant risk. Now, modern fuse boards are a different kettle of fish. They quite often contain something called an RCD or residual current device. Mm. That disconnects the supply at 0.03 of an amp. Mm. So it keeps you super safe. Mm. So if you're going to buy a property which has got a fuse board in it, mm. one, you need to get the fuse board changed, really. Mm. Um, but So you need to ask for a discount for changing that. But two, because of the age, it's very likely the wires are shot as well. Mm. So you really want to be saying, right, okay, that's fine, but in your price, I need to have a discount for rewiring the property and for replacing the consumer, changing the fuse board to a consumer unit. Um, so I think that's quite important when you're, when you're looking at purchasing a property. So when you see a fuse board as opposed to an RCD... Consumer unit. Yeah, consumer unit. Would you always be thinking, right, this is a rewire? Pretty Are much. there any circumstances in which you could have an old fuse board but wouldn't necessarily have to rewire? It, it kind of depends on your strategy, really. You know, if you're flipping it, I would immediately say change it because when you come to sell it, the surveyor's going to come round see that old fuse board and go, possible rewire required, because mm. it gets him right out of the, off the hook, you know. Yes. He's, he's giving you the right advice. Yeah. So if you're flipping it, first step, change it. When you change it, all your um, circuits will, will be tested. So you're immediately going to know whether you need to rewire it or not. Mm. Um, and, you know, if it's at a bad level, the ethical right thing to do would be to rewire it. Mm. If the cables are okay, you can put a new consumer unit on there, and when the surveyor comes around, he's going to see that. You'll be able to provide him with the um, electrical installation certificate, mm. and he's going to say, it's all good, not a problem. Okay. So, I mean, again, this is a very broad, general question, and then maybe there isn't a, a real answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Typically, if you see a fuse board as opposed to a consumer unit, how often would you find that you also need to rewire the circuits? Or how often are the circuits okay? What sort of splits it? 50, 50, 75, 25, you, 90, 10? I mean, you're heading is there a typical? More, more towards 75 and 90. Really? Yeah. So I mean, the chances are it's going to need a full rewire if it's got a fuse board. Fuse board, yeah, pretty much. Um, <clears throat> I suppose I should speak a little bit more about consumer units and what, okay. what they are and, and, and uh, educate people about that a bit. <clears throat> so there are two types of consumer units commonly out there. Uh, Plastic one, which is slightly older, and due to regulation changes in 2015, a uh, metal consumer unit, which is referred to as Amendment 3 compliant. So, uh, plastic consumer unit, uh, rather than having fuse wires that burn out, it contains, contains clever switches, which are referred to as MCBs or miniature circuit breakers. They have quite an advantage in that if you do have a fault, you can just, the switch will disconnect the supply, and um, once you've found what it's what's caused it normally a light bulb's broken or something you can flick the switch back on you don't need to do intricate annoying rewiring with the right sort of wire you just flick a switch so that makes life a lot easier 
but they do perform kind of the same function. They've got an ampage rating, and when that ampage is exceeded on that circuit, they disconnect the supply. So um, you still haven't got this 0.05 an amp protection, which is what you get from RCD. Now, commonly, the RCDs are twice the thickness of an MCB, so they're quite easy to spot. They also have a test button on them, which the MCBs don't. So that's one way of identifying them. And commonly they protect a group of circuits altogether. And like I said, they trip off at 0.03 of an amp, which makes it super safe. So it's important to have them. Um, so you'll be able to identify a consumer because it's got miniature cir circuit breakers in an R and an RCD and it's plastic. Um, <clears throat> if you're buying a property like that, you probably want to ask for a discount to get it changed to Amendment 3 compliant one. Um, if you're flipping it, you definitely want to change it because the surveyor is going to come around and go, it's not to the current regs. So um, <clears throat> by changing it, you can get away with the surveyor giving your purchaser tips to ask for a discount from you. Um, if you're keeping it, uh, well, it may be okay to keep that and run it. You'd certainly want, it, want the system test to make sure it's okay and you haven't got a rework coming your, your way. Um, if, <coughs> if it's in a licensed HMO, you're probably going to definitely have to change it, I would suggest. If an electrician does a condition report on that property and it's in the sole means of escape or under the stairs or in a cellar, um, he'll have to put that down as a C3, which is improvement recommended, and your local authority will go, improvement recommended, you better get it done. Um, but then uh, there isn't sort of consumer unit police going around checking to see who has or hasn't got, the, got these things changed. Um, so that's kind of my advice on, uh, on the plastic consumer units. So it wouldn't necessarily be mandatory, <coughs> but it would be advised. Indeed. As things stand at the moment, but these things change constantly and one imagines things are going to become even tighter. Yeah, well, you know, if, things are going. if you're doing a new build, you have to put the board in to the current regulations. Yes. So it's not retrospective, but uh, a new build or you're, you're um, developing another part of the property that needs a board, it has to be Amendment 3 compliant. Right, because I must admit my heart sank a little bit then, Chris, because <laughs> I was thinking if we'd actually got away from a fuse board and actually had some kind of consumer unit, tick the box, job done. Mm. But you're saying that's not necessarily even the case. There's qualities and standards of consumer units indeed. depending on what's in them, which is what we need to be checking for. Well, in, indeed. I mean, uh, certainly the first uh, uh, units that had RCDs in, they quite commonly only protect the socket circuits, yes. whereas you really need everything protected, yes. in my view, to be, yes. to be safe. But again, it's, not, it's legislation that isn't backwardly applied. It's uh, forwardly applied. But you know, if you want to be ethical, Yes. Then you'd probably want to protect your tenants uh, as much as you can. And, you know, that's another interesting subject I get into with landlords, particularly on things like smoke alarm systems. They go, oh, I don't really want to pay. The, what's the minimum amount I can, pay, I can pay? And I said, well, you know, you're trying to protect your asset here. Mm. And um, that's an interesting conversation because I like to look at Robert Kiyosaki's uh, definition of an asset. And it does confuse landlords slightly. So they, th when I say asset, they think they're building. But their mm. building isn't an asset unless it's got tenants in it. Yes. If it's untenanted, it's a liability. Yes. So actually your assets are your tenants. Yes. So if you're going to protect your assets, you want to protect them as best as you can. So you get the right consumer units and put the right smoke system in. Absolutely. In. And for anybody who's wondering, Robert Kiyosaki is the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And if you haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, read it because it's a fantastic book. 
So, Chris, really, this is, this is the kind of stuff we all need to know. So, just as a quick recap, we're looking for the one with the test button? Um, you're looking for, uh, ideally. Ideal, the ideal, the best, of the, yeah. You want a Metal Amendment 3 compliant consumer. Metal one. Yep, yep. And you want all the circuits covered by RCDs, so yeah. commonly that involves having two RCDs in there. Um, and if you're purchasing, ask for the test certification. If you, if you can get it, that's great, because it proves it's been tested. If they don't produce it, go for insurance, go for a discount for the testing to be done, um, so that you know you're right. If you're selling it, make sure you've got Amendment 3 compliant board, make sure you've got your test certificates. It'll make, you, make the sale go through a lot easier. Surveyor can't start waving red flags at you. Okay. Uh, if you're renting it out, protect your asset, which is actually your tenants in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I love what you're saying about that because it is so short-sighted not to be thinking that way. We can take a view and think, well, nothing may never happen. Nothing may ever happen. But the thing is, if something does happen, and as you say, if your poor tenant ends up having a cardiac arrest because they touch something they shouldn't, you're in big trouble. So it would make sense to also make sure that the tenant is as protected as they can be. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is a bit of a general question. We'll see how we get on with it, whether you can give an answer. But if we're assuming that if there's a fuse board, probably 90% of the properties are going to need to be rewired, if we instead find that there's a plastic consumer unit and not a metal one, what are the chances of a full re rewire with that? Presumably less, but... It's a bit 50-50, really. Okay, um, so it's getting there's better. A, there's another label you can look for, which you may find on a consumer unit, you may not, but it may say something about um, two types of wiring colours present in the system. In 2005, we went to a harmonised European standard of uh, brown and blue colours on the cables. Before that, we were red and black. So that sort of, if you've got red and black cables in, the most earliest point they could have been installed is in early 2005 or 2004. So you're kind of getting close to the 15, 20 year period where some people say you should be re rewiring the property anyway. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, that's probably not my view. My view is you should test the circuits and see what yes. state they're in. Yes. But uh, there are other people that say, oh, I'll just do it every 20 years. So, um, yeah, if you've got any red and black cables in there, or if you've got that harmonised label present, then uh, you know you've got a rough date of how old the cabling is. So that can be another guide if yeah. you've got a plastic consumer unit in there. All right, OK. OK, well, we'll maybe come back to that, because I've got sort of quite strong views on that as well. I'm not sure that they're right, though, <laughs> so maybe you can tell me. So, obviously, when we're looking at uh, the property, we're looking at things like the sockets and the, the consumer unit or the fuse board or what it happens to be there. What else are we looking out for, Chris? Well, and uh, what, could the, what are the other potential pitfalls that we could miss? Well, one of the things that um, can be a, a real headache, and particularly if you've got a fuse board in that property, you're likely to encounter this, is under, under provision of sockets. Mm. When that electrical system was put in, people didn't have many electrical devices to plug in. So quite often you'll find only a single socket in a bedroom. Now if you think of your bedroom now, how many electrical devices might you have in there? Mm. Two side lamps, some people have a TV, hair dryer, mm. and you need to plug your phone in to charge it up, mm. whatever. Mm. Um, and one of the risks of, of unprovisioned sockets is that your tenant may have a lot of electrical devices, particularly in HMO, they might bring a whole load of stuff in, their own kettle, for example. And the socket faceplate has a certain ampage rating. If you load that up by putting lots of extension leads on and lots of devices on it, you can exceed the ampage that the faceplate can cope with. 
at which point you get a fire. Mm. And electrical fires can happen very fast and obviously be pretty damaging. Mm. So under provision of sockets is a big problem um, and something you should look at. Now, if you put in how many sockets in a bedroom into Google, you'll find a fantastic free document by the ECA. And on the back page of that four-page document gives a little table of how many sockets, double sockets they recommend for different types of rooms. So and Google and ECA, uh, that's what we're looking for. Well, if you, if you Google how many sockets in a room, yeah. you should find in the top few results the ECA document, which you can okay. just download. Great. And that, that's really helpful. There is also guidance in another document which your local housing standards authority will have access to, but you can Google, mm. called LaCause. LaCause is a local authority council standard for um, basically electrical safety um, and uh, fire escape uh, scenarios. So um, that's also, you Google it, download it. It's a big document though, mm. um, but there is also guidance, guidance on how many sockets per room in there. Mm. Okay, fantastic. Because some of the stuff we can't see, can we? I mean, things like undersized cables. No. Well, well, what, what's the implications of that? Well, under, undersized cables is, is a real tricky one. So um, that's typically going to happen in the kitchen with your cooker or oven or in your shower. So um, just let's deal with the kitchen first. You've got an oven. An oven's going to be around uh, two to three kilowatts. Now I'm going to take you back to Ohm's law and kilowatts. So that's uh, 2,000 to 3,000 watts. You divide the watts by volts. God, I'm taking you right back to a physics class now, aren't I? Mm. Yeah, I can physics. See <laughs> physics was my worst subject, by you're, the way. You're looking uncomfortable. <laughs> so, yeah, so that'll, that'll give you the amount of amps you want, and, and, and that, that's fine. Um, best practice is for an oven that's over two kilowatts to be wired on its own circuit, which is also fine. Um, a lot of people have an electric oven and gas hob combination, so that if one service fails, you can still cook, which is great. But there's a very much a trend nowadays to get rid of the gas hob and put an induction hob in, which people love, mm. induction hobs. But induction hobs require an awful lot of electricity. So if I said an oven's typically two to three kilowatts, the hob on its own can be sort of six, seven kilowatts. And if you try and shove that down the cable that was supplying a two kilowatt mm. oven, right. one or two things is going to happen. Right. Either your fuse, I hope you haven't got one of those, or your miniature circuit breaker won't be able to let that amount of electricity through, so it'll switch off. So you get something called nuisance tripping, mm. which if you rent it out, it's going to be a pain because every so often it's gone again, it's gone again. Mm. Um, and it could be just a combination of the food they're cooking at a time, so it might not happen all the time. Mm. Um, but the worst scenario is that the miniature circuit breaker will let the current through, but the cable won't, and your cable will overheat. And as the cable gets hotter, it creates more resistance, which means it gets hotter, and that, and that creates a vicious cycle, but it creates a vicious cycle in fractions of a second, mm. and you'll have a fire. Mm. And so you've now got a cable on fire that runs through your property. Yes. How damaging is that going to be? Yeah, yeah, well, potentially lethal. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's uh, this undersized cable problem in kitchens. If you don't know what you're doing, shoving an induction hob in top of a cable, not a great idea. You're, you should be getting an electrician to do it, yes. and he should obviously notify you that there's a problem. Yes. But uh, you know, if you're a have-a-go hero, you could be having a go at burning your property down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the similar thing happens with showers as well. You know, uh, one of the smallest electric showers you can get is 7.5 kilowatt mm. shower. Uh, but people go, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't 
force the water out very well. It's it's not what I want. I'm going to put a 10.5 kilowatt in, and you're going to need a 10 mil cable for that. And if you haven't got a 10 mil cable, you're in the same possible situation: yeah. nuisance stripping or electrical fire. So. Getting the right size scale is really, really important. Yeah, and, and the point which occurs to me here, Chris, is actually knowing what your tenant's up to. Because if your tenants are have a go hero, as you describe them, and they start changing things without you knowing, as some do, then that could cause the problem. But ultimately, the responsibility will come back to you as the landlord. And indeed, and if you haven't got the right certification, you haven't got a leg to stand on. Yeah. Because yeah. the, they can say, it all, that's how it was given to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if I'm doing my viewing tomorrow and looking, these are some of the things I can look for. But when would you suggest actually getting an electrician in to have a look at the property before I buy it, Chris? Um, well, you know, if you're going to off on that property, I'll get the electrician on second viewing to advise you. Right. And that's certainly the people I meet up in Derby in the Midlands. When I get asked that question at property events, I say, are you looking to buy it? Let me come before you, you finalise the offer. Because, like I said already, you may be wanting to get some discount because the electrical system's not up to scratch. Okay, well I must confess I've never done this. It sounds like it's something which I should do when I buy my next property. If I was to ring up my local electrician and say, I'm thinking of buying a property, will you come and have a look with me? What do you think would happen? What would their response be? Well, you're in Nottingham, so you should clearly <laughs> ring me. You should ring me and I'll come along. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how bad electricians work, I wouldn't like to say, but, you know, if they're into giving you a really good service, they may well see as a, as a way of um, helping you and potentially securing the business. So it's, not, it's not something that's completely unknown. People do it and, and electricians respond. I haven't rung them up. I do it. You do it, yeah. <laughs> I do it. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, having bought the property, I'll get, as soon as you've bought them, that should be your next move. Get them in yeah. to get some quotes done before you start messing with the rest of it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. For all the reasons we just talked about, if you don't get the wiring done first, you could end up undoing everything you've just done in order to get the wiring then sorted, which is immensely frustrating. It seems to me, and we, we could talk about the building regs and everything, we probably shouldn't because we could then go on for probably weeks worth of podcasts <laughs> going through lots of very technical detail. But if you could give us a sort of guide as to what's happening at the moment, there seems to be all sorts of different certificates that you can get. So can you just talk us through that and how it relates to the regs and what we need to know? Yes, certainly. I mean, uh, there are a lot of certificates, and I'll just touch on the main ones, because otherwise we will be here for a while. Yes. Um, so, um, needs for certificates. Uh, when you're changing things the, on your electrical system, you may well need a certificate. Let's start at the beginning. If you had a white socket faceplate and you wanted to change it for a nice brushed chrome one, you don't need a certificate. That's called a like-for-like -like swap. Okay. So. That's fine, you can do that without needing requiring a certificate. Can I just stop you there though? Am I right in thinking though, that the minute you start doing anything to an electrical system though, if you're not an electrician, you're potentially going to fall foul of the regs? I would highly suggest you use a competent person. Even, even to do a like for like on a plug socket? Well, you know, when you take that socket off, have you disconnected and isolated the power supply properly? Yeah. When you take it off, when you look at what's in there, do you know what you're looking at? You know, I had a fantastic inspection that I did up for a landlord up, up in um, Derbyshire where I took a socket plate off and found that the, somebody had taken the neutral, uh, started taking the earth wires out and shoved one of the neutrals into an earth terminal. Yes. Well, that's pretty good. You just made all of your safety system live. Well done. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I'd recommend it's done by a competent person yeah. for certain. 
And is, is there a regulatory reason for making sure it's done by a competent person? Am, have I imagined it? Or is it right that any time you start fiddling with the electrical system, the regs say it should be done by a competent person, as Indeed. opposed to me asking my wife to do it, for example? Indeed, it should, it should be done by a competent yeah. person. But yeah. you know, uh, unfortunately, there are plenty of happy-go heroes out there. And yes. I'd sometimes come across their yeah. work. <laughs> there we are. You'll convince me what I already knew. DIY is dangerous. Don't do it. Get somebody <laughs> else to do it. Yes, that's my view. Okay. So, so, so like for like. Like for like, that's okay. No certificate required, but probably a competent person to do it. Yeah. Um, then you come to a minor work. So a minor work certificate is required when you're adjusting a circuit. So you might be adding another light bulb or another socket to an existing circuit. So in those instances, you get a minor work certificate, which is a one-page document. It basically uh, proves that the system's been tested for safety after the change has been made. Um, if you go further than that, you come onto an electrical installation certificate, and that's used for larger jobs. For example, changing the consumer unit, we've just talked about um, at some length, and providing new circuits. So perhaps you've bought a property which had no smoke alarms in, and you now need a grade D system smoke alarm, and you're going to put the, the wire in separately. That would be a new circuit, which would require electrical installation certificate. Uh, the last one, uh, sorry, just on electrical installation certificates, you get a summary of the system, you get a schedule of inspections and a schedule of d uh, test results where that insulation test results will be seen. The last one is an, an electrical, electrical installation condition report. So this is when the system's rechecked after um, the system's been installed and as I said, typically 10 years after the installation or five years if it's a rental property. That is, a, a, again, a summary of the system uh, a schedule of inspections, but on top of the schedule of inspections you get any recommendations that may be required or changes that may be required. And they broadly come into three categories. A C1, which means it's imminently dangerous, mm. so someone could immediately touch something that's going to be going to give them a shock. A C2, which is potentially dangerous, so something else may have to happen, and then they could be put into a C1 situation or C3, which is improvement recommended. So those are the three main documents uh, that you'll come across. There are more, but uh, yeah, we could talk for ages. The key thing to understand with all of this, though, is that A, you shouldn't be doing it yourself, and B, we need to be thinking about this stuff possibly more seriously than we are, Indeed. and making sure that these checks have been undertaken. Okay, so I mentioned earlier, we've just recently had the tragedy of the Grenfell Towers, and that's obviously been in the news, and one can only imagine at the moment, the way the political winds were blowing anyway, everybody's looking at what landlords particularly are doing with properties, probably for good reason, and there's nothing wrong with making sure that we're keeping our standards high, I've got no problem with that. But as a very practical thing, what can we as property investors do now to protect our asset? You keep calling it our asset, and I like, like that term. What do we, well, how are we going to protect our asset, Chris? Well, you know, uh, one of the important things is obviously having a good smoke detection system so that you, the smoke's detected before you get a fire. But um, probably the first thing I should do is just give you a quick walkthrough of some of the regulations and guidance. Uh, one of the most important uh, regulations is the regulatory reform order uh, to do with fire. And one of the key points in there is the requirement for fire risk assessment, which perhaps property investors and landlords aren't aware of. Certainly the more clued up people already look at liqueurs, but that regulatory reform order says you must have a fire risk assessment done. And that's not a if or but. Just go and look Google 
fire fines, you'll find the top 25 fire fines, and almost everyone mentions lack of fire risk assessment, or it's a common trend through through that. So, so just to be clear, are we talking about your standard vanilla buy-to-let property? Yeah, as, as well as your big commercial conversion. Property. Indeed. Right. So who would do the fire risk assessment? Well, that's a very good point. So you can be a have-a-go hero and go and find a template because a lot of fire service uh, departments have one on the internet. You can go and fill it out yourself. Um, and you know, if you've done your fire risk assessment, that's okay. Uh, I've got a very good friend called Kevin Randall. He's an expert witness and gets called into courts where people are getting prosecuted for, because of non-conformance to standards. And he would ask you, having seen the fire risk assessment you've done, Okay, can I just see the certificate, your training certificates that allow you to do the trainings and some evidence of the experience that you've got in writing fire risk assessments? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, if you're facing Kevin and haven't got that stuff, you're in big, tr yeah, big trouble. Your credibility goes down the pan, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a fire risk assessment for a small property is going to cost you about 100, 100 quid. Yeah. Uh, so I'd encourage people to get that done. Um, so that's we kind of talked about fire risk assessments there and I was, I was trying to take you through some of the regulations and guidance. So I'm going to talk, you said don't talk about building regs, but I'm going to talk about building regs approved document B and in particular something that's mentioned in Appendix E. God, I sound interesting now, <laughs> don't I? Everyone's fallen to sleep. So in Appendix E, there's something that defines dwellings and non-dwellings. Right. So a dwelling house, according to Appendix E, is up to six people living as single households. So that's kind of your six-bed HMO. That could be considered a dwelling house. If you have more than six people in an HMO, it becomes a non-dwelling house. And I suppose you might ask why that's important. That's important because the next bit of, uh, of guidance there is out there, which is British Standard 5839, which deals with um, fire detection systems in properties. That's divided into two parts. Part one is non-dwelling properties, and part six is Dwelling properties, um, and although they're kind of similar, they're definitely different. And uh, I suppose most people doing, well, everyone doing buy-to-lets will be in, having to use the guidance in part six. As soon as your HMO gets over seven people, you're going to be in part one. Right. So um, that's uh, uh, the guidance, and we'll probably come back to that in a second. But I'm going to throw this back to you now, Peter. Okay. Being a, a prolific landlord as you yeah, are, yeah. Um, why do you think it's important to have good fire detection in your properties? What's because, the impact? Well, because I don't want my tenants to be injured. That would okay. be my primary concern. Indeed. Secondly would be I don't want my asset to burn down. So if you did have a fire, what, what do you think could happen? Somebody could get injured or my asset could burn down, or both. And, and okay, so... And the, the legal action. Yeah, and then... Okay, we've gone through all of that. Now, now what are you going to do with your property that's got fire damage? Yeah, I want to make an insurance claim. Insurance claim? Oh, that's interesting. Insurance claims. Guess what they might look at? They might look at whether you've fire got... Fire assessment. Fire risk assessment. Yeah. They might also look at things like how old your smoke detectors are, okay. which is something else that probably people don't know, is yeah. that if you take a, a, a standard smoke detector, British standard guidance says replace it every 10 years. Mm. You've got a heat detector, replace it every four years. Right. And if you haven't done that, guess what Mr. Insurance person might say? Yeah, you're not going to get any money. Yeah, but you've also got the disruption to your business now, haven't you? In terms of you're going to get no rental in income from that property until it's refurbished and retented. Yeah. You've got uh, all the refurbishment work to do, you've got the tradesmen to find, and uh, it's going to be a massive disruption to your business. Um, and, you know, would it be okay if I just 
took you back to something that happened to me in my time mm -hmm. to illustrate a point. Yeah. If I take you back to um, October 1990, you would have found me sitting in a little red 1.1 Fiesta. It was one of those really pitch black autumn nights, you know what I mean? It's inky black. And I was racing through my hometown of, at that time, Letchworth. And although I was racing and driving fairly quickly, you couldn't, I couldn't really hear the engine. All I could hear next to me was breathing. It wasn't that sort of calm, nice breathing. It's the short, pitched, strangled breathing of somebody who's panicking. I was, I was sitting next to my mother. We were on the way to our industrial unit, which was on fire. My brother and my father, they were up uh, at a company called Senator looking at new products. So we were just having to deal with this. We drove along Icknield Way and turned into Ascot Industrial Estate. But the entrance is the dog leg, so we couldn't see what was happening immediately. All we could see was the flashing blue lights reflecting off the building walls. And as we turned the corner, the breathing turned to, oh no, oh no, oh no. And we saw smoke billowing out of our uh, industrial unit. A bit like one of those chiroplastic flows you see from a volcano, just expanding vastly and the two fire engines there and the flashing lights and, and firemen breaking through into our building to put the fire out. And my mother was panicking, quite rightly. This was our source of income. This was our business. This was our life as, as it was at the time. And we got out of the car and one of the firemen scrambled out of the front of the building and pulled off his breathing gear. His face was red and covered in sweat. And, you know, you could smell that smell of a property burning, which isn't the normal sort of wood type smell. It's that smell of burning plastic, that acrid, choking, horrible smell. And I went over to him. I said, mate, what's it like inside? What's it like inside? What is it like inside? He said, it's gutted. It's all gone. You've had it. And the, the next morning, my, my father and my brother came back and we made our way into the now soaked building that all the fire had been extinguished. And I remember walking to the door and peculiarly crunching across the carpet because it was mixed up with broken glass and melted plastic which had now reformed and we crunched our way through the building. And one of the things that really struck me was that the actual site of the fire wasn't very big. It wasn't a huge fire. Okay, it burnt a hole through the, through the ceiling, through the roof. Um, but yes, it was quite a small fire. What struck me was the black ring around all the walls where the smoke had got to and the heat damage had decimated the property. I remember looking at our computer monitors with the plastic that had dripped off the glass screen and was now lying on the desktop. And the cow pat of a set of letter trays which are now completely flat that completely melted. And bizarrely, you could pull the, plastic, pull the paperwork still out. Paper hadn't caught fire. Just the heat had melted the plastic um, letter trays. And uh, then there was the tropical fish tank, which had got truly tropical. Mm. All the mm. fish were floating on the top, and mm. the vacuum cleaner with the handle was bent over and twisted. And, the, you know, the damage that small fire caused to the heat and the smoke was just, well, it did gut the property. And... Uh, you know, that was a very difficult time for my family. And mm. I, do, I do remember being particularly impressed at uh, my, my father's reaction to it because um, he reacted in a way. And I'll, I'll take to some, some, someone said something that was very poignant and uh, is a touch base for people now, I suppose, in that uh, you can't influence the things that happen to you. You can only influence your reaction. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, 
you know, my father was completely above the line in his, his reaction. And I, I love the above them, below the line model. Uh, you know, he took ownership of the situation he was in. He created a plan and was responsible for that plan and uh, uh, was accountable for the results we got. And he immediately got on the phone, started ordering porter cabins. We put porter cabins outside. Our computer system still worked unbelievably. We put that in the porter cabins. Our six-way phone system had been destroyed, so we just got one phone line into our porter cabins, and we carried on trading. And uh, you know that was so such a brilliant reaction from my father and my brother and my mother. We didn't go into the blame, excuses, and denial we could easily have dripped into, mm, which mm. meant we probably would have closed the business. Mm. But you know that the impact of that fire. Although the fire was small itself, completely messed the business up for a period of time. Yeah, and uh, you know, I just don't want property investors to be in the same position as we were in. Yeah, and uh, you know, that's why I think it's it's so important. Yeah, absolutely, isn't it? Absolutely, but we know in our business there are good guys and there's the bad guys. Hopefully, everybody who's listening is a good guy. But for the bad guys out there, what can they expect if they don't follow the guidelines and the regulations? Well, you know, you, you've Touching an interesting thing there, I mentioned Googling fire finds. Um, I, I did Derby fire finds the other day on, on the internet and came across uh, a, a hotel in Derby and uh, that guy hadn't been uh, taking heed of what he'd been advised. Mm. And uh, it's a, ho- a hotel in Derby, he got uh, £40,000 worth of fines, £20,000 worth of costs mm. and uh, six, years in, six, years, six months in prison. Mm. Uh, but, you know, Google fire fines, you'll find landlords getting fined all over the country. Yes. Uh, so don't get fined and don't get put in prison. Yeah, absolutely. And it can happen so easily. I mean, I haven't been fined and I haven't been put in prison, but I had a tenant, for example, who went to the pub one night. He came home, he was a bit hungry, so he decided to make some chips in his pan. And you can imagine what happened. It burnt the whole kitchen, the house fire damaged. It just happens. So don't sit there at home thinking, well, it'll never happen to me. You just never know when it's going to happen. And it could well happen to you. Well, you know, and some, one of the things we haven't really talked about yet is just uh, a slightly confusing part of the regulations, which is categories and grades. Uh, so I shall probably just quickly touch on that. Um, in terms of, uh, we won't talk about part one because it is slightly different, uh, but in Part six of the British standard, um, you've got the main category that you're going to be concerned with is L, which is called life protection. So you put in a smoke, a smoke detection system to protect life. You get a D as well because it's domestic, because we're in the domestic side. And then you get a, um, L1, L2, L3. So L3 being your escape routes, L2 being your escape routes and other rooms, and L1 being everything. Um, your fire risk assessment will advise what grade you need. Um, you then have categories which run from A to F. I only recommend using grade A or grade D. Um, the British standard says you can put F some places. So I'll quickly just run through those, give you a recap. Um, F, which I think F stands for flipping useless, mm. <laughs> means that you only have a battery in there to power your, right. s- to power your smoke alarm. Now, if you've got your tenant in there and your, the smoke alarm goes off because he's smoking in there, mm. he's probably going to take the battery yes. out and not put it back again, so mm. you've now got un- unprotected. Um, e is a mains powered only, which I just think is extremely flipping useless, because if you have a fire, one of the things that's going to affect is your power, mm. so um, that may be no good either. Um, D is what you're going to use most of the time, which is mains powered, interlinked, a wire running between them, so if one goes off, they all go off, um, and with a battery backup. Um, 
See, unlikely to use, you've got a little bit of control indicating equipment. B is a proper fire panel with a burglar alarm attached, for example. A is your full-blown fire panel, which if you've got a HMO with seven people or more in it, is what you're definitely going to need. Mm. Well, Chris, I think, unfortunately, we've got to the end of our time now. So I wanted to say thank you for making a technical subject really interesting. It's something which I'm going to be thinking a lot more about, and I guess as investors, landlords, the way the political winds are blowing, we will need to think about this more anyway. In terms of what my agent said, a quick sort of one-liner from you, do you have any idea when perhaps electrical testing will become mandatory on, say, vanilla bytelets? As well, they are with HMOs? I believe it's in the, housing, the 2016 Housing Act, which is gradually getting unrolled. Yeah. And I think it might be back end of the summer, I think. Right. So it could be pretty soon. We're recording this in June, so look out for this sometime in 2017, probably. Yeah. But it's coming. Indeed. Indeed it is. So, Chris, it's been fantastic talking to you. If anybody wants any more information or they want to contact you, can they contact you? Yep. I'm, uh, I'm on Facebook. Just Google uh, Search for Hector's Electrics on Facebook. Hector's Electrics, H-E-C-T-O-R apostrophe S. Yep. Hector's Electrics, but yep. Chris Hector, you can find me as well um, on Facebook. And I'm happy to help anybody out if they need some advice. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Chris. So that's Chris Hector, a wealth of information when it comes to electrics and other regs. Please do check him out. Go to his website. You've got a website, yep. hectorselectrics.co.uk. And I've been Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author, Property Investor. This has been the Progressive Property Podcast. And I hope that you found the information this week not just interesting, but extremely useful. It's something which we need to know about. If you have any questions for me, find me on Facebook, send me a message on Messenger. And I, if it's a, a topic which looks suitable for a podcast, we'll probably cover it in the future. Get involved in the community, put your posts on Facebook be great to meet you there. And until next time, here's to successful property investing. <laughs> <laughs>